The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or new voters in the state of Georgia. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, and this is the December 1st, 2020 edition. Today, it's my pleasure to bring to you the exhibit, Almost Presidential. Speaking to us today will be artists Deborah Ashheim, Matthew Brannon, Cynthia Segovia, and exhibition curators, artists Marisa Fjordernik and Rebecca Sittler. We'll be right back. to the show. My guests for the full hour is a bountiful panel of artists and artist curators who've built a remarkable installation and online project at the Doyle Arts Pavilion at the Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, now until December 16th. It's entitled Almost Presidential, presenting new work from Pio Abad, Deborah Ashheim, Matthew Brannon, Cynthia Segovia, and exhibition artist curators, Marissa Fjordernick and Rebecca Sittler. They'll speak to us about their canny ways of examining the American political landscape in quite profound ways with the use of sculpture, drawing, photography, installation, and video. In the run up to the 2020 US federal election, the exhibit's been looking at vice presidents and failed presidential candidates, investigating names forgotten to history or reduced to one-liners or supporting roles outside the spotlight. Their scope includes political systems in the US and beyond, including Mexico and the Philippines, combining fiction and historical fact into an active survey of political material, text, and image. Starting alphabetically, let's have each one of you state your name and where you are so listeners can begin to connect your voice with your name. Hi, I'm Deborah Ashheim, and I'm coming to you from my home in Pasadena. Hi, I'm Matthew Brannon. I'm talking to you from Nantucket, Massachusetts. I'm Marissa Fudernick. I am based in Glendale, California. My name is Cynthia Segovia, and I'm joining from Woodland Hills, San Fernando Valley. And my name's Rebecca Settler, and I'm here in Long Beach, California. Well, thank you all, and welcome to Ask a Leader, everyone. Thanks for having us. Well, for four years, I'd submit that we've been fed mounting portions of performance art of what I would call the exhibit hardly presidential. So we're going to now talk about your great work, almost presidential. Tell us a bit about the genesis of the project and how you were able to interact with one another and what kind of cross-pollinating has taken place. This is Marissa. The exhibition really started when Rebecca and I came across each other's work. And in 2016, I had an artist book published called 13 Presidents. That's a book of photographs and short stories with American presidents as protagonists. And the research for that project involved me taking a very big road trip around the country to visit all of the presidential libraries and archives in the U.S., 
And that research then transformed into fictional stories that sit alongside photographs in that book. And Rebecca had also produced an artist book that was based on her own travels to presidential libraries and was also a book of photographs. And so we did a book swap. And at the time I was still living in London But then once I had moved to California, we got together, we met up and found out that we had a lot of shared artistic interests. And around that time, I was at the Richard Nixon Library in Orange County. And the curator there said, oh, you know, there's this other artist who's also made work about presidents. Her name is Deborah Ashheim. So we reached out to Deborah and the three of us got together And at that point, it was maybe about a year and a half ago, less than two years ago. And we said, well, we've got another presidential election coming up. Wouldn't it be great to do an exhibition together? So that was really the start of this exhibition. And then we invited several other artists who we knew whose bodies of work had dealt with ideas of the presidency or presidential politics in some way, including Matthew and Cynthia and Pio, who's based in London, to all make work for this exhibition to coincide with the 2020 election. And I'm just going to quickly mention that Peel's work is dealing mainly with the Philippines, and but there he is just so, uh, and he is the only artist in the installation who will not be present at today's interview. Well, and then you managed to find Cynthia and Matthew at some point. Right, that's right. Um, I had seen some of Cynthia's work at Cal State Long Beach, um, also where I teach. And um, I thought Cynthia would be a great sort of companion for the other artists work in the show. And I thought also that she would bring really interesting perspectives having worked really with both politics in Mexico and the US. And then Marissa knew Matthew, I think from many years ago and can probably address more of their kind of relationship. Yeah, I mean, I was a very big fan of Matthew's work for a long time. And I think when I had started to see some of the work, Matthew, that you were making as part of your big Vietnam body of research and work, uh, and Matthew can tell us a little bit more about that, there was some overlap with ideas of presidential politics. And so I think we had started some correspondence before Almost Presidential came about. It seemed like it'd be a natural fit to make something for this exhibition. And I would also maybe just This is add, Rebecca. Yeah. Yes. So I would also maybe just add that I think many of us have a somewhat unusual crossover in our work between kind of being interested in history and and also being artists. And I think those two things kind of coming together was a really important part of us working together on this project and exhibition and kind of finding community with one another. Um, Many of us have traveled to a lot of the same places across the US and beyond. And so I think a larger part of this show has been really about having kind of conversations with artists who are also interested in these kind of nerdy intersections of, of art and politics and history and archives in particular. So I think that's been a large part of how the project has also grown. Yeah, I think we all have interesting relationships to archival research and using historical material or archival material. And also the way that all of the artists involved in this project have uh, a weaving of fact and fiction in their practice in a lot of ways too, I think. 
And there are so many places to jump off from there. And I guess maybe I can quickly give a, a summary of the work that's in the installation that Marissa Feudernick, it's called Concession, and it's about text and speeches. Deborah Ashheim takes up the Nixon-Kennedy relationship particular meeting in Key Biscayne, November 14th, 1960, that's between the election and the inauguration. Rebecca Sittler dealing with Fritz, that's Fritz Mondale, fragments from an, an imagined presidential. Cynthia Segovia's, I am worth it, I will be Mexico's president about a spouse. And that's a topic we'll open up a little bit more later. And Matt Brandon, political pressure, political vacuum with various media. I just want to give that sort of summary of what's in there. So I guess you've already started to talk to the point, which is that you have your roles as artists, and then you're also observers and activists. So there's a tension in that, or is that not about tension? It's actually gives clarity what, that what you're trying to do with both of those roles. Well, here, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I think there's overlap. And, and I think that we actually use each other a lot as a group to try to get historical perspective on things that are happening now. So this I know, Deborah, right? It's Deborah, yeah. So I okay. know a lot in the days since the election and that week when we were waiting for the results to be tallied. And even in these weeks of uncertainty, waiting for this unprecedented situation where the defeated president refuses to concede, we've used each other a lot. We maintain a text thread where we check in. But then in in terms of literal activism, Marissa and Cynthia and I are in a group called Artists for Democracy, and we're very involved in doing a lot of organizing activities that range from fundraising to phone banking to trying to get out the vote on college campuses. And then Rebecca and I worked together on a project with her students when I was artist in residence at the Registrar Recorder for LA County, having the students work to try to get out the vote on their campus of Cal State Long Beach. So I think we pretty seamlessly go back and forth between these roles, but we also are able to use obsession, you could say, with history and archives to draw parallels between 20th century, at least, electoral politics and things that are very confusing and are hard to get perspective on in the moment. Well, what I think is interesting when you're talking about fiction in your work, that another through line of your work is that you're talking about how there's the mythology of those electoral seasons where the candidate failed or not failed candidates. They're building these themes and that, but the fiction is really a way to sort of do a correction on the, the mythology of whatever that figure is. So I, I think that's, that's really a marvel. I wanna take it back to sort of some general ideas then. The role that memory and individual experience of contemporary campaigns and contemporary elections have on our ability to see clearly what's taking place. And so I wanna know whether for most of you, these are retrospective experiences of campaign seasons. And I want to know if you find that the retrospective work gives you a different way of detecting patterns, through lines, recurrent mythological kinds of uses based on that. So I, I want to know if there's a different kind of generational experience of how these mythologies are built in the body politic. How about that math mouthful? Who wants to take that? Here, Rebecca. I guess I can weigh in a little bit here. I think in particular, my interest in presidential museums and kind of thinking about the visual rhetoric of presidential museums really came about through a story that my dad had about meeting Harry Truman after an all-night road trip when he was 18. 
so one of the things that um, I was thinking about quite a bit when I went to the Nixon Museum was the strange sort of experience of feeling like uh, at certain points that I was walking into my grandparents' living room and kind of thinking about the ways in which certain notions of masculinity are really embedded in this history of presidential campaigns. And then also thinking about the effect that those mythologies have really had on the men in my own family um, and how they have also kind of informed my own perspectives on masculinity as a woman and as a feminist and kind of trying to think about different ways of opening up this visual rhetoric to kind of think about it in new ways. And I think sometimes artists have ways of approaching, let's say, history, even though, and I think all of us approach history in, in slightly different ways, actually. But many of us are interested in kind of taking a sort of a sideways glance at history and trying to kind of open it up to new ways of thinking about how we've kind of gotten to the present moment, but also about how these things can kind of influence our kind of contemporary lives and the people that that we care about um, in many ways and the country that we care about. And I think these kinds of things I'm not sure if I'm getting to the, the core of your question, because I think it's a complex question. But I think that you know, many of us have been um, thinking quite a bit in particular about these mythologies, really, especially since the 2016 election, uh, but even before that, and kind of thinking about how these things have this impact, or how mythologies have a major impact on who gets to be president and how they are very slowly open to other kind of possibilities or identities. And I know that Pio Abad, that he has taken text from the very elaborate relationship with the Ferdinand Imelda Marcos couple, power couple from the Philippines, and sort of their relationship with Reagan administration officials, their relationship with Rudolph Giuliani, and how Pio Abad brings out language it was a standard that Rudy Giuliani applied in the 1980s when he was a federal prosecutor, but it's not, it's not recognizable in the last half week about justice being meted out. So it's, it's so timely, it just keeps getting, it's more searing than ever. And, and he makes, P. Abad makes a point of putting his work in marble, the permanence is not lost on any of us. Giuliani's words from the 1980s is permanently etched in that marvelous, the marble slab. So does anybody else want to talk about how memory or learned experience or retrospective research, archive work that you're all doing, if that makes for a more acute observation about where we're headed now? I mean, within the next week, the next month, the next two years till the 2022 election. This is Matthew speaking. I would say that I've actually become more apprehensive about drawing ties with my project to the contemporary situation. I think that when I began this project addressing the Vietnam War, I was more apt to talk about the current administration when I could think about drone warfare and Obama and Afghanistan. And I find that the last four years were so unprecedented and such a wild card that I was more hesitant to actually speak of how I might take observations and understanding from the past and then applying them to the present. It's like a speed bump in archival and other research, uh, artistic let, endeavors. Yeah, let's hope it's a speed bump, yeah. 
or lots of broken bottles in the middle of the highway <laughs> for an indefinite distance. Does anybody else want to take that up? I think one of the maybe differences in, in how some of us approach history too are even though many of us are using archives and like in my work, for example, I do a lot of research and I have some sense of being faithful to historical accuracy, but I also make a lot of stuff up. And that invention is, I think, part of how I try to understand these histories or have some personal relationship with them. Whereas Matthew does incredibly rigorous research and is very accurate and faithful to the historical but then that still does get infused with the voice of the artist and, and with personal material. But I think, I don't know, I mean, maybe there's like a narcissism in how we view bigger politics where a lot of times it's really about our own lives and ourselves. And, you know, this idea of defining a period in our own lives and our personal histories by who the president was and the way that that's much more about that more than it is about an individual figure, it can be about a period of time in American history. And maybe there's something in that way that we're constantly trying to use the past to understand the present as well, that it's kind of this fixation on our current moment, even if maybe some of this historical stuff doesn't tidally connect with what's happening right now. Marissa, I want to take exception to the narcissism. I don't think that I think you should give yourself more credits. I think that the, we as constituents, if we have a platform, a means of addressing what the mythologized leader has done upon us or short how they've, what their impact is on us, it, it's sort of, it's making the case for you as a constituent, I would say, which is a more benevolent, a more altruistic, I think, kind of measure than uh, being a narcissistic sort of uh, creative artist person. Does that, is that a possibility? Yes, I mean, I think it's a bit of a harsh, harsh word choice, but um, but there's something about like the the literary or the artistic where it, it's often ultimately about you know it's about the voice of the artist or the voice of the writer or seeing ourselves within that. In my work, I'm literally embodying these failed candidates by wearing very yes. crude paper face masks that I've made of failed candidates from the last sort of 50 years and photographing myself in different landscapes wearing that, those masks. So like I'm actually becoming those figures. So with the masculinity that Rebecca has raised this, uh, the aspect of masculinity. And so I wanna talk about the factors. That's one of them, gender. The other factors of influence in these kinds of electoral seasons, these stretches of there's this genders we mentioned, there's race, there's ethnicity and persona. If any of you would like to talk about the factors that influence these outcomes. This is okay. Cynthia. I was thinking about your question on how one of the reasons why I like the story of Margarita Zavala de Calderon is because her husband failed epically as a role model and how unfair it was that she was judged by the legacy of her own husband. I'll finish my thought in a little bit. 
I can say something at least about the gender. This component. is Rebecca, no? Yes. In that, while I was doing some research for uh, the previous body of work that I made in presidential museums, I found a book by Jackson Katz called Leading Men, um, where he argues that presidential elections, even if they are um, competitions between two men, are always essentially about gender um, in essential ways. So he talks a lot about competing forms of masculinity and about kind of a long sort of history of in particular sort of attacks on the masculinity, particularly of democratic male candidates. And I think that that there was something, you know, for me in terms of, of kind of thinking about what it means to be presidential and how, how that is so restricted by this kind of ongoing sort of reification of particular forms of masculinity when it comes to presidents kind of playing or presidential candidates playing into these kind of like roles that that they are expected to play um, and even you know going to all of the presidential museums I would sometimes talk to some of the staff who would have a lot of experience with the other museums and with visitors who had gone to every single museum and and sort of talking about this sort of similarity of this this kind of shtick of American masculinity. And, it was practically a template. Right, right. Okay. And wow. and you know, so for for me, you know, the the potential of really working with someone like like Fritz Mondale is really about kind of trying to introduce something to the political imaginary that I was frustrated at not seeing. So kind of some, you know, looking at a presidential candidate who, for example, approached the presidency in some, in some different ways than previous candidates had approached it. So someone who highly valued uh, supporting roles, who chose a woman as his running mate, someone who you know, really built the vice presidency and changed the role of the vice president during his term with Carter. Um, someone who would foreground his female running mate. So he would kind of reverse the usual sort of construct of campaign photos where he would sort of ask her to be in front of him rather than him always being in front of her. And so for me, it's about, I think as an artist, it's about introducing something to our kind of political imaginary, right? Um, right. Um, sort of saying like things could be different if only we had the imagination, right? And, and, and I think many artists are kind of excited by that idea, kind of politically speaking, right? Is that it's very important to kind of put things out into the world so that we can imagine them kind of building consensus over time and building familiarity over time. And so I think both my fascination and really critique of a lot of these places like presidential museums is that that things change very slowly <laughs> and you know I see really the potential of art as sort of providing a, a sort of imagined shift. Okay thank you and someone else like to speak to those factors? I caught a couple minutes of Obama on 60 Minutes recently a bit of him talking about his presidential library in Chicago those of us who love doing research in archives were very disappointed to hear what they're not going to actually have any physical archives at the library, yeah, um, that, that everything's going to be digitized. But he was just saying the other day about how, of course, we'll have all of Michelle's gowns. And so even seemingly more progressive 
president like Barack Obama, that library will still continue this legacy of the way that the role of the first lady is presented, where the big attraction for visitors is to see the dresses. And I, I was it's really- It's fashion, not policy. Yeah, I found that disappointing to hear him say that. I mean, I'm sure that, that Michelle Obama will be presented as uh, more than just someone wearing these dresses, but that is kind of one of the key features of the other presidential libraries yeah. and their museum displays is the first lady is primarily presented through the collection of gowns. And it sounds like that is going to continue. I mean, for looking at supporting roles within the White House and gender, the way that when Hillary Clinton was first lady, that she was, you know, absolutely pummeled for trying to have a role in policy. And, you know, many of us are really excited to see what role Kamala Harris has as vice president and how she shapes that office, because that's the closest we've had to a woman having some real power in, you know, in that branch of government. And so what you're bringing up, Marissa, is the extent to which spouses fit the definition of almost presidential. Their influence, we know, objectively, was tremendous. So, I mean, influence is a part of this. Whether you're almost presidential, you may have had influence that was outsized from the fact that you were yourself not elected. It was a failed candidate. Or do spouses fit into that category? It would be great if Cynthia can chime in here. Thank you, Marisa. I think that the role of Margarita Zavala de Calderón in the Mexican presidency of her husband, Felipe Calderón, was like really influential for them because they are a couple that met in law school and they started to be very important in their party, the Partido Acción Nacional. And when it was the time to choose a candidate for president, it was her husband to run. And four years after that is when she started her own campaign and she failed to be selected as a candidate. And one of the things that also that I think that influenced this decision is that there were a bunch of um, male candidates that were super bombastic, very machista, made to the old-fashioned way that Mexican society likes. So here and, and were they also every conceivable vocation? Yeah, they have different professions, but the main idea is that they were all men. So yeah. she didn't have a serious chance to run for president because Mexican society doesn't consider women to be potential president because they are women. <laughs> So the, you can see this in a, this theory of mine. <laughs> you can see it portrayed in her interviews because she is always smiling. The interviewers are mainly men. Oftentimes there is a panel of like five men and they are attacking her and for the things that her husband did, like the war against drugs that killed thousands of Mexicans and civilians and she's always smiling and trying to answer in the smartest way in the most sometimes shallow way and the result is that she was never perceived as good enough like she's not strong enough uh, when she's strong she's too strong 
And that has so many resonances to Hillary Clinton's campaign. As well as actually when Kamala Harris was a presidential candidate and, and also in, as a vice presidential nominee debating the, the sort of the thin band that she could. For, I just wanted, for any guest who's just joined us, for the full hour, my guests are artists Deborah Ashheim, Matthew Brannon, Cynthia Segovia, and exhibition curators and artists Marisa Fudernick and Rebecca Sittler about their current exhibition at the Doyle Pavilion at the Orange Coast College campus. It looks at vice presidents and failed presidential candidates investigating names forgotten history or reduced to one-liners or supporting roles outside of the spotlight. And this is an online exhibit. It will end on December 16th. And so Cynthia Segovia is talking about her name is Margarita Zavala de Calderon because yes. de Calderon is kind of like he owns her, right? In us, in and, and more so. And yeah, that's right. And I that is what made me think a lot about like what could be going on in her mind. And so it was for the work in Almost Presidential. I created another character, a shaman who is the yes. only one who is capable of advising her and telling her the truth. So through jokes and irony, this character reveals aspects of a machista society that still doesn't take a female candidate as a serious option. So the shaman presents a complete makeover of her campaign where she can be strong, independent, and prescribes magic potions, amulets for her to leave her husband who cast so much shadow on her and rituals to free herself from caring about these criticisms as a solution for her campaign problems. So another concern I had about how you all address the political universe and what is possible, the mainstream media role in shaping how their coverage influences the campaign's forceful mythology. And I see it as the mainstream media couches the electoral outcome as an inevitable outcome. Could you all talk to how much mainstream media is shaping the influence, making some almost presidential and quite presidential? I mean, they're still doing it now in, in terms of the coverage of the U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia next month, there's an inevitability the mainstream media is building in that the Republicans will maintain the majority in the U.S. Senate. So I just want to see if you have some reactions to that role the media has played in that inevitability of outcomes. It's Deborah. So I don't really do anything with that's fictional, but I do consider history to be an like a collective form of memory. And so I don't really think of it in terms, like when you're talking about the media's judgment or portrayal of things, I think of it as a constantly in flux, like just like memory in the brain is continually being revised and rewritten. And, okay. when, and as you look back on things, you know, the something that's true or the perspective that you have on it at one point, you might get more information later and that changes it. I'm very interested in like vernacular history and trying to find the other versions that didn't win, you know, that like kind of in the media court of public opinion or later in the, what becomes the historical record, because that's obviously part, not the only version. And it almost might tell more about who we are now, which version of the many possible ways to interpret a past event is the 
the one that we subscribe to than about what happened at the time. So for example, my piece in the show was just about this one hour meeting between yes. Richard Nixon and- who Which was, was really Oklahoma. instructive. I'd had heard none about, we know many other things, but this was an amazing meeting you talked about. Well, I mean, for me, it's really interesting because I turned out to be wrong about it. And so when I was making the drawings, I'm really interested in like super deconstructing a very short period of time. There was a 36 hours that Richard Nixon spent in Puerto Vallarta that I did a big project about just trying to find everybody that knew about the meeting between Nixon and Diaz Ordaz in 1970. And so in this case, it was only an hour, you know, it was basically a photo op sort of handshake in Key Biscayne. Nixon was the outgoing vice president. So he had some transition reasons to meet with Kennedy. And he also was the way that the media contextualized it, being a very good sportsman, like and gentlemanly and shaking hands and congratulating the winner of what was one of the narrowest elections in the 20th century. But then when this election became so close, and there were allegations of misconduct, and the lawsuits began starting from the current administration, the other history started coming out that the Nixon campaign had actually really seriously considered contesting the results and that the whole people were so much better now everything was less partisan or more gracious or more genteel or that there were norms that are now violated. That version of 1960 really started to unravel when people started investigating, did that really happen? And so that's really fascinating to me, actually the idea of history as a form of power struggle and the version that wins is kind of determined by who gets to say which version is the real history and that you can go back and find competing versions that got sort of stomped out or that relate in a different way to things that are happening now. And it actually makes you sometimes more confused and less clear on what's going on, but I think maybe more true in a different way. And so like what Rebecca's talked about and what Marissa has seen in in their presidential library, that makeover, (laughs) those sanitizing exercises can reinforce that and bury them for good. I will mention that presidential libraries and museums, they exist at a particular strange intersection between what we might call state or legitimate history and myth-making because they have a section that's privately fundraised that is really a shrine to the president and is funded by his supporters or his foundation. And then there's a part of the National Archives that's in the public trust where credentialed historians are hired to do the work. And the Nixon Library is maybe the most extreme example, but because he left office being the only president that resigned for many years until the early 2000s. It was the only presidential library that wasn't part of the National Archives. And in fact, it was massively overhauled by Timothy Naftali, who came out of the Miller Center for the Study of the Presidency at University of Virginia, and he's at NYU now. And he came in to reform it so that some of the most egregious biases could be corrected so that it would be eligible to be part of the National Archives. So they're a really interesting case where you look at what we consider at least like history that we all agree to a certain extent is a legitimate version colliding with pure mythology. So we haven't really talked about the extent to which almost presidential persons, though made out to be very influential in setting the body policy agenda in several realms and in some of the work that's posted in the almost presidential online installation is the extent to which Bernie Sanders is one of those people. He has really been influential as a contender for the presidency, I would think in the lead up to the 2016 as well as the 2020 election. And would you consider that his influence might even exceed that of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris? 
This is Marissa. I think Bernie Sanders, at least when we've been talking in the context of this exhibition with each other, he's just one example of a presidential candidate who did not win the election, but had a notable influence on shaping policy or political culture, society in some way. But he's really just one example. And we can look at failed presidential candidates like Richard Nixon, who went on to become president, or Matthew's work in this exhibition about Ronald Reagan, who ran for the nomination in 1968 and, of course, went on to become president. So there are examples of failed candidates who then were, quote unquote, successful later on. But there are also people who just, you know, laid the groundwork for future candidates. So I had looked at Shirley Chisholm, ran in 1972 for the Democratic presidential nomination. She was the first Black congresswoman in the U.S. and the first Black woman to run for a major party's nomination for president. And her candidacy is really important to look at as something that laid groundwork for Kamala Harris this year. But I think there are many candidates in many different ways or, you know, going back to, to Barry Goldwater, who lost, I mean, it was a real landslide, the election that he lost in, but he's now credited with being the, the father, the godfather of conservatism in America. So it's maybe the flip side of Bernie Sanders is how someone like Barry Goldwater led to Ronald Reagan what would someone like Bernie Sanders lead to in a couple more election cycles? And I'm thinking as we see the Biden-Harris administration elect making appointments for the cabinet and other advisors, they may resemble Obama administration or, or Bill Clinton administration advisors and cabinet members, but I'm talking about the policy agenda that Bernie Sanders has, I think, a potential for seeding the goals, stretch goals for climate redistribution of wealth, you know, or student loans, health care. This is Deborah. That may be hard to measure since we just are waiting to see what the Biden administration is going to turn out to be. But we were on a presentation last week where we were talking about Stacey Abrams. And that's a really clear example, I think. Like yes. Stacey Abrams, you know, lost her election, but then continued to do the work that she'd been doing for 10 years in fighting voter suppression in Georgia and the infrastructure that she built and the turnout of low propensity voters that she was able with Fair Fight and New Georgia Project. She's not the only one doing it, but her incredible work is a lot of why Georgia flipped blue and helped Biden win the election. And so in the panel that we were on last week, we were actually talking about like, you could argue in some ways that she may have been more effective as a failed candidate than if she had been able to successfully become governor of Georgia. Right. And she has infrastructure in place to deal with the two Senate runoff elections on January 5th. Incredibly. Knocking on wood as you talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's a great example. Uh, yeah. And, and maybe, and this might be a great time for Marissa to jump in and talk about yes. um, the artist she researched, which is, who was Shirley Chisholm, who was a really early, you know, African-American female candidate that maybe never had a chance, but we can look back now and see how her ideas uh, transform the landscape that we live in now. So part of how I wound up looking at Shirley Chisholm was because in the actual work that I made for Almost Presidential, one of the failed candidates who I photographed myself as was George Wallace. 
And I was really fascinated by the fact that George Wallace and Shirley Chisholm were both vying for the Democratic nomination the same year, 1972, because they were such polar opposites. George Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama for many years, famously racist, pro-segregationist, and he was a third party candidate who, in 1968, who actually, that was the closest I think we've come in recent history to getting rid of the Electoral College because the Democrats and Republicans were so worried that he Mm -hmm. was going to split the vote that the House actually voted to eliminate the Electoral College and then that bill died on the Senate floor. But George Wallace, again, another failed candidate who had a lot of influence on politics. And so this guy who ran on a campaign of law and order, um, that that was his, his big slogan, was so pro-segregationist, and and that's what he's most famous for now. His delegates were on the convention floor in 1972, right alongside Shirley Chisholm delegates. And so you had these two very different visions of what a presidential nominee could look like that year. And so for me, that certainly had a lot of echoes in the 2020 election cycle. So when I hear that, I do not remember them being presidential candidates in the same year, 1968. I have both of them. They're on my historic sort of continuum, but I didn't put them together. I think this, Claudia, I think this does raise an interesting point. And and just to clarify, so it was uh, George Wallace ran for president several times. Um, 68 was was the year he was the third party candidate and got 13 and a half percent of the popular vote nationally. But 72, he was running uh, as a Democrat. And that's when Shirley Chisholm was running. But this idea of who we forget (laughs) and how much does anyone remember of these candidates and do people recognize these names or these faces if they were alive at the time? And for those of us who maybe weren't, how much do we learn about them? And One of the things that we as artists are able to do is we can shine a light on some of these forgotten histories and draw these things back into the the forefront of conversation and and consciousness. And and one of the things I really enjoy as an artist is getting to discover some of these histories that are new to me that maybe were lost from a mainstream narrative. So getting to Marissa's point about consciousness, all of you talk about the more elevated the voter or any individual, because not everybody's eligible to vote, but people are all eligible to participate. So the more that they're participating in electoral politics, would it mediate the influence of candidates? Would it improve our public memory the more we're engaged? Could each one of you talk to that? This is Matthew. Yeah, I have a hard, you know, my mother worked for the League of Women Voters and the ability to vote was something that was spotlighted from a very young age. And I have tremendous guilt when I entertain skipping a vote. So it's uh, hard for me to think outside of that. But um, yeah, I believe that No, I think that this, I'm very curious how this last election will influence the next one as far as the voter turnout, as far as uh, methodology to vote, uh, ways to vote, and excited that, you know, where this country will take it if we can uh, have such large turnout for voting. So I'm interested as far as how we retain that history and what we make of it. Going back to your other question, I think the mainstream media, that's also a thing that I'm very unsure about right now, like what role it's playing and how 
are upset is being marketed or weaponized against us and micro targeted. Yeah. So it's, I think this is, it's very hard to see the moment. I think that, um, yeah. And I'm uh, very worried, but slightly hopeful at the same time right now. So <laughs> we'll see. And who else would like to, I hope each one of you has something to say about that. The more, and I'm thinking of the participation part, not, I mean, voting is part of it, but people that are really owning the election, if that gives them more of a control, a, a, a more of an insight, and they're less sort of at the behest of the influence of the candidates mythology building. Let's have Rebecca be next. I've just been sitting here thinking about your your question. I think I just have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think in some yes. ways this this past election that we've just been through felt more like a sporting event than any other election I've witnessed in my lifetime. And I'm all for participation. Um, and I think, you know, at the same time, we're also fighting a lot of voter disenfranchisement and we're fighting voter suppression. And we're also fighting, you know, a lot of issues with gerrymandering. And, um, and I think, you know, those things continue, I think, to work against the potential sort of power of a more engaged electorate. Um, and I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that people are actually engaging more with the issues. Um, but I think sometimes what I see is this desire for, this kind of continuing desire for a kind of parasocial relationship with candidates um, where, where certain sort of personality characteristics are still speaking much larger than policy. Um, the old, the old would you have a beer with this candidate kind of right, routine. Right, right. And, and I think when things come down to that, and, and also just because, you know, I'm originally from Nebraska, so I, I have a very diverse political feed, let's say on Facebook and on various other uh, social networking sites. So, so I think the thing that has been disheartening for me about a more, maybe a more engaged or highly emotional sort of political season is that, you know, I think as Matthew mentioned, I see a lot of our relationship to politics really exploited and <laughs> heightened in ways that, that I think keep us really away from issues and engaged more in something which feels like a sporting match. So I, I don't know if that's a, that's not a very optimistic place to leave it. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things is we started planning the show really before the election season was fully sort of engaged. And, you know, one of the things that many of us were trying to do really was to get out the vote. And we were, you know, in many ways dealing with you know, a lot of us engage with college students on a regular basis. And, you know, we were also dealing with an elongated primary season where, you know, the candidate for the presidency was perhaps the much more moderate and tempered and perhaps less inspiring candidate. So we were trying to think about different ways to bring new content into the show by, you know, looking into all of our um, fascination with archives and kind of thinking about how consensus happens over a long period of time. And, you know, to try to kind of get young people in particular or college students in particular excited about participating. 
even maybe when the presidential candidate in particular was not their ideal candidate. So, you know, Deborah and I in particular and Marissa had a lot of conversations about this and about ways to kind of show really more historically the potential for elections really being a place for someone to sort of use their vote to help build that consensus for things that they care about and believe in. So Deborah, you should say something here. I think you have a about individuals participation. Yeah. So I've been working a lot on get out the vote since at least extremely a lot since 2018 um, to the point where, you know, it's, it's one of my sole focuses. So I'm thinking a lot lately about how even ostensibly in triumph where the Democratic Party has regained the White House, most Democrats that I talk to are really anxious and depressed. And the thing that they'll say is, yeah, Joe Biden is the president elect, but 70 million people voted for somebody that, you know, is an overt racist, you know, and has, um, has been accused of um, sexual misconduct and, and doesn't believe in climate change and, and hasn't protected us during the pandemic. And people are really depressed, even though we won. And that number 70 million, instead of seeming like a reinforcement of the democratic process, is uh, something that kills the optimism that makes them think we're so divided and, there's so, and that so many people came out to vote for this president is really discouraging. And then at working for getting out the vote, it worked very nonpartisan, but across, all across LA County for the past year, I met a lot of people who felt really disenfranchised and had given up on voting. And many of them had turned out they were from historically underrepresented communities and low income and um, communities of color. A lot of cases they had voted for Obama and their reasons for not voting anymore, even though my job, and I believed in my job a lot, was to try to convince them to vote. They weren't bad reasons. They were they made a lot of sense. They felt disenfranchised because they hadn't seen their lives changed and they felt that candidates were very interested in them every two years or every four years, but then, you know, did once they didn't need their vote, hadn't followed through. So so now that I'm no longer in my sort of like cheerleader, get out the vote mode and I'm a little bit more reflective. It's complicated, right? I don't, yes. I don't know the answer to the thing the pundits keep talking about. Like, how do we resolve the disinformation, the influence of these extremely partisan media channels like Fox and Sinclair Media that have tons of data showing that when that's the main source of news for a community, the community you know, changes how they vote. And then the more political things, the gerrymandering, the voter suppression. But I also think there's this other really important thing that we need to address, which is it's got to be more than just voting. And so like one of the things that we talk about a lot in this group that Marissa and Cynthia and I are in is that it's got to be, you know, protesting, organizing, lobbying, voting, not just showing up every four years to cast your ballot and then hope that whoever you chose is going to take care of all these things. It's got to be this much deeper level engagement that honestly is just, is just ongoing and it's exhausting to consider, but it really has to be part of your everyday life. So Cynthia, with machista themes that you've seen that are certainly here in part of that the voting public is trying to, should be mediating around. But as, did you want to speak to that question about the voters' ownership maybe mediating the influence of the candidates? Yeah, well, I didn't, like the machista part is one aspect, but and the part that is more interesting to me is that the politics in Mexico and in the U.S. are, are ruled by two men that are bombastic, that, that sometimes believe in COVID and sometimes they don't, that they believe that the power of relationship trumps the power of diplomacy, 
they don't believe in climate change necessarily. But the other aspect that is also interesting is that they have polarized the country and their citizens. So when we are asking people, especially young people to get involved in politics, one of the walls that we hit every time is that they are afraid of making the wrong decision. And this is because it's so difficult these days to find the facts and to really be critical about it. So it's my intent that to be critical as engaged as possible citizen in both countries to really be in favor of the changes that I want to see. And it's very hard when it's so difficult to find the truth about every single topic that you're interested on. So that was, those were my... So that's that's an important point that the bandwidth is really challenged to get to the point I'm talking about is for a, a greater literacy and understanding of the individual in the body politic. If the bandwidth is being tampered with, with drama, with so much literacy in, in public health, in climate change, in financial uh, income redistribution, the bandwidth is really jammed up. So getting to the point of understanding Uh, being critical about and learning about what you need to know, that's very problematic. And that's part of what you're saying too, I think. Yes. And also another aspect that I wanted to mention is that in Mexico, for Mexicans, it's very difficult to understand how it's possible that Trump losing the popular vote, it wasn't just like, that's that. (laughs) It's very difficult to understand for everyone around the world that there is an electoral college. It doesn't look like a democracy from the outside. And the other aspect that I think is important to tackle in both countries is the access to this uh, literacy that you're talking about and to the channels that where you could find some kind of truth or information. Because both countries are dealing with a lack of infrastructure to sustain these new paths that we are asking people to go through. So there is not enough internet in, in many, many part, regions of, the, of both countries, Mexico right. and the US. What you show in your project where there is a bias for the mainstream candidate because of access, it's a digital sort of signature collection to qualify for elected office. And if your following is in rural and poor areas, there's not going to be the connectivity for those people to sign up and launch that candidate. Exactly. And in that exact uh, example that I talk about in Almost Presidential, the platform that this indigenous woman called Marichui won in is so interesting and it's so progressive. But for the reasons that you explain, we are never going to see her running for president again. And who knows if we are going to see the indigenous agenda integrated into the plans in the future. And it's very worrisome. And that, that's a huge other topic about what uh, with the indigenous population in the United States being a factor in all the way federal office, all the way down to a lot of local offices. So... Could we get Tyler on? Tyler Stallings is joining us in this interview and talk, Tyler, about how 
listeners can access and view the exhibit. There's so many different ways and so much material. And when it rolls up on December 16th, is that the final date that we would have access to this, Tyler? Well, Claudia, first, thank you for uh, doing this special program on the Almost Presidential Exhibition. We all really appreciate it. For the show, is technically, it's an online project in this time of COVID. So with the campus shut down and the Doyle shut down, we were moved to our online projects. So we have, in order to bring attention to it, and that it was during the um, election period, technically we have it December 16th is ending, but it will live in its archive format since we're speaking about archives, you know, on the website. So really it could be accessed anytime. It uh, can be after yeah, the 16th. Right. right. And then there is a 15 minute feature film that was produced. It has a lot of B-roll, has a lot of references to many of the points of discussions that you made that, you know, help illustrate the points further. And that's available on YouTube. You can just search Doyle, Almost Presidential, find the film, or it's also on the website. And also it gives everyone access to like Marissa's other kinds of productions and with Rebecca's and Deborah's. Deborah has a 365 Days of Voters Instagram project, which includes UCI faculty. But there, I mean, Marissa, those videos were amazing of this. It's about... Or, 20 minutes of looking around the Trump Tower. I mean, I was so triggered to look at that. Is that is it about 20 minutes? Yeah, that's a, a previous work that I made in uh, 2018 called Trump Tower. That's and it's yeah, accessible. That's yeah, that's accessible on on my website and my YouTube channel. Okay, so that's what I was trying to find out with Tyler helping us navigate. One can just continue on and look at everybody's work that's available with links in the installation, links to everybody's work, which is really extensive. Is that a fair way to serve up these opportunities to listeners, Tyler? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a um, many routes to discovering more and more about, you know, all of these artists and the full breadth of, you know, what they're doing. You can, you know, look through some of their books through a digital format, find out about the archives they're looking at, you know, see about their previous work. So I want to thank everybody for being on Ask a Leader today. My guests were Deborah Ashheim, Matthew Brannan, Cynthia Segovia, and exhibition curators and also artist Marissa Futernick and Rebecca Sittler about their current exhibit at the Doyle Pavilion at the Orange Coast College. This is all online. It looks at vice presidents and failed presidential candidates investigating names forgotten to history or reduced to one-liners as you heard about in this interview, or their supporting roles outside the spotlight. Thank you everyone for your time, which I really, really do appreciate. And congratulations on a deeply thoughtful collaboration, which deserves a rousing multi-generational turnout locally, nationally, and internationally. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Claudia. We appreciate being here. Thank you, Claudia. <laughs> Thank you, Claudia. The extended portion of this interview is available on askaleader.com on this same date. Well, that was my wrap. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening. And mask up, everybody.